Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of social design movement from the fields of architecture, planning, engineering, and art. We've got an amazing two-part episode coming up with Brent Brown of BC Workshop. We recorded this interview uh, a while back, and originally it was supposed to be a one-part episode, but we got so engaged in the conversation that we decided to extend it. Brent has a lot of amazing stories and wisdom to share. Emiliano, what, what were your takeaways? Well, I think uh, this was an extremely inspiring and eye-opening uh, interview, especially because Brent has been working in Texas, that is a state that is known for its richness, but also for its inequality, and has been really addressing and focusing on issues of uh, housing, and affordability in terms of housing, and also of uh, disaster relief. We were still talking with Brent about this question, can we design community engagement? And I think that his organization, Building Community Workshop, is probably one of the most interesting uh, U.S. organizations that is addressing these issues nowadays. Yeah, I was really taken away by, you know, his process and just how organic it seemed. You know, I was waiting to hear about some, you know, master plan or list of directives or something like that. But I think he really told a story about how a designer can go into a community and put together a, a team, a multidisciplinary team, and really just kind of take it away. And the process, through his words, seemed so natural. And as you said, uh, you know, BC Workshop has been doing this for a while in a lot of different forms. They're well known for the Rapido project, which was an intense integrative disaster recovery program that brought together case management and interviews and builders and designers with the aim of having people back in their homes uh, within, I think, 12 to 20 weeks or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was very short. But also, besides being them back in their home, the idea is that, you know, the homes would be permanent instead of just being uh, temporary sheltering. So it would be quick, but then done uh, to stay. Right. But also, I, I think that it's it's really uh, interesting to see uh, the political perspective that uh, BC Workshop has, because also Brown also has a position as uh, the director of the Dallas City stu Design Studio. So he, he's somehow understanding development in terms of uh, developing policies, but also understanding how people can get involved directly in reinforcing uh, this vision of, of creating affordable housing. So basically, he's really empowering a group of people to go on through the process of building a community. That was really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, both of us certainly always find the intersection of design and politics uh, interesting. And, you know, Brent has sort of formalized that in the way that he set up BC Workshop um, and simultaneously runs, you know, this you know, Dallas Design Studio from within the Dallas city government. And I think it's a role model for a lot of young designers who are asking themselves how they can affect change. You know, at some level, like you have to be intertwined with what state, local, national governments are, are doing. And especially in a politically charged place like Texas. Miliana, did you know that Texas is the only state in the United States that preserves in its constitution the right to secede at any moment? No. Yeah. <laughs> they have to vote in their legislator, and the Texas legislature can just vote to secede, and then they become a separate country. Brent really talks a lot about uh, Rio Grande Valley. There was a, it, it's a place that was completely unknown to me. I then uh, did some research and understood that it's really, you know, a, a very important uh, geography. But also, if I understood well, it's also a geography that is really at risk, especially uh, looking at climate change. 
Yeah, it's very low-lying um, and subject to flooding, and a lot of those areas in which Brent was working were unincorporated, um, meaning they didn't actually fall under the aegis of a particular government. A lot of them are communities of undocumented workers, and especially in you know our current charged political climate, you know these are the sort of people that get left behind um, by the professional design community, and they're at risk. There's not a market-based design profession responding to the sort of challenges that they're looking at. I think we should listen to Brent, but before I'll just introduce him. Uh, we're speaking with Brent Brown, the founder of BC Workshop, that is a Dallas-based nonprofit and a community design center. Brent founded uh, BC Workshop in 2005, and uh, well, later he opened also two other offices, one in Brownsville and in Houston. So it's uh, their work is actually uh, all over uh, in in different communities in Texas. Brent, how did you develop your interest in, uh, you know, social impact design? How did you start actually engaging in this entire profession? You know, I think it was an evolution of experience and observation. I think it had a lot to do with my parents. You know, just I was raised to care about where I live and, and uh, respect people and realize that, you know, I'm just I'm one guy in the world with a lot of other people. And we all have hopes and dreams and to be respectful I worked for a guy by the name of Gary Cunningham here in Dallas for about five years before I started out on my own. And I had a good experience with Gary. I think in many ways he he is a social impact, public interest designer, architect. He approached it in a different way. He didn't talk about it that way. And I think there are a lot of architects and a lot of planners and landscape architects and et cetera that have in their practice uh, approaches. They're very much in this grain. And so when I went out on my own, and I was starting my own practice. I just, I don't know, I, I just didn't want to design a building to design a building. And I think that comes back to it, you know, being relevant, you know, and having my skill have an impact on issues of the day and in places where it would be of benefit to the long-term effects of the community. Uh, and it was more than just building a building uh, or designing a building, you know, and, and, you know, looking at it. And I've been forced, I've I've designed houses for several million dollars I've, you know, that were built. I've, I've done schools, and they were rewarding in a way, but it just didn't fulfill for me what I thought an architect was supposed to do in its entirety. And unfortunately, kind of fortunately and unfortunately, I guess, I, I thought I had to create an, an entity or a mechanism to do it. And that was where BC, you know, came from. You know, I, I'd like to think you don't have to go create a separate entity. You could just do it in your practice. But in creating BC and creating a model that was a hybrid in a sense, we have, a, we have an earned income model, a fee-for-service model, where people pay us to do things. Uh, but we also have contributed income. We have sponsors, patrons that support our work. There's an independence there that provided an opportunity to say no. We maintain the ability to not do work. Uh, if we feel that it's not relevant and contributing. Now, in, in, in our maturity, I guess I'd say, in some places, you know, we, we, we were asked to be on a team for a project. I won't get into the details, but we were asked to be on the team. And somebody said, well, what if you don't get the project? Is that going to alienate you from being able to work on it? I said, well, look, we're here. We're working on this project one way or the other because it's important. And either they'll hire us and they'll pay us or we'll be there every day to make sure that that the public interest is being revealed. And uh, if we can help assist others to make that happen, we're going to do it. 
And that's, that's what the model can allow. So, you know, it's not just that patron model. And I think there is a big difference there. And one of my hopes is that we'll, we'll continue to develop academic relationships. Uh, we've had them in the past, but we've never fully forwarded those, both for where our staff can teach, but also where I think our, our, our practice can, can help to influence the pedagogy of, of academia and the relevance that, that can be brought uh, within that in preparing individuals for doing work such as this. BC, to be quite blunt, it was a fabricated kind of mechanism. You know, it's kind of like a tool, uh, selfishly, for me to try to be able to do that. Now, I never really, I, ne- I never kind of projected it to, to grow into a multi-city, you know, kind of thing uh, initially. I still never gauge its success based on either how many people we have or how much work we do or how many places we're working or any of that. My judgment is always back to that first question of, is the work relevant? Is it informing? Is it empowering? Is it championing design as a way to make healthier, beautiful, equitable places? That's why I would really rather kind of focus on it, you know, the, the geography and the geography I, I'd, I'd raise is the Rio Grande Valley, uh, not because of the border necessarily. And even now, given the, the tensions under, you know, the current kind of federal uh, government uh, tension to immigration and undocumented uh, residents and, and, you know, walls, fences, things of that kind of nature. You know, Texas in general is kind of a design frontier. It's not something that while we have some affinity for it, it's still nascent, you know, and, and design is more of a facilitation tool than it is seen as an equal partner or equal player in shaping or making, I think, places. The Valley is like this frontier that's even further remote in, in, in not just in, because it's a very modest place without a lot of resources and extreme poverty and education issues, et cetera. I think it represents a whole series of attributes that I think you can find in lots of places in the country. Brent, when you first, uh, when BC Workshop first engaged the Rio Grande Valley, what was the the point of entry? Uh, I think you've done a good job of, <laughs> you know, drawing out the issues there, but how did yeah. you begin? So the truth of it is that, uh, I got a phone call from a guy, Nick Mitchell Bennett, who's an entrepreneurial community development guy who'd been working in the Valley. He's not from there originally, but he's been there a while with his family. We're about the same age. And he was trying to do his first tax credit project, his first affordable housing tax credit, multifamily project. And he thought there could be another way to do it. And he had heard about us and he asked if we would consider putting in for it, you know, like what that meant, what he wanted us to compete for it. You know, we were pretty small and we hadn't had that attitude of kind of competing for work against market firms. I met with a couple of my, a couple of key guys working at the time, Benji Fian and Andy Stern. And we talked about it and, you know, Benji was in the middle of Congo street and building out Congo street. I mean, we were stretching ourselves. And Andy was in the middle of a project in Dolphin Heights where we were we were trying to invent something we called BC Core that was going to help to make 
improvements to existing houses. We were trying to help do planning in the neighborhood. And it was a pretty, pretty concerted effort where we had 12 people like in this neighborhood working very concentrated around a multidiscipline team. And, you know, that, that, that team, you know, there was like a grad, there was someone who graduated from law. And I'm telling you this because it was like law, engineering, landscape, uh, architecture, planning, you know, it was a kind of multidisciplinary team that you kind of always wish for. And kind of little did I know that where the valley would take us would be to really create that. Um, mm. So anyway, so when I, I talk to these guys, I'm telling you this part of the story because it's comical. And this, this, is, this is how I think a lot of things happen. <laughs> um, I said, you know, here's this opportunity to go maybe get this 55-unit multifamily project in Harlingen, Texas, right? And I had been talking, my best friend who grew up together was running a, a greater Texas foundation. He was focused on education. And we were having lots of conversations about the Valley, and he had informed me a lot about the statistical side of poverty and education and all of that and how, and I'm a sixth-generation Texan. And so for the future of the state, and in many ways, it, it propels into the national agenda. You know, you go south of San Antonio and there's a part of the state that over the next 10, 15 years, and this is again five years ago, you know, depending on what we do there is going to really have a great bearing on the state and on the region because of the lack of education attainment, the growth in poverty, no wage growth, et cetera, job creation, et cetera, and the large amount of, of undocumented um, residents. And so one day my best friend, Wayne Rosser, said, he goes, you know, Brent, we're focused on education there. It would be great if we could bring the way you think and the work you guys are doing about shaping places and empowering people through the way you both build housing, but also the way you really build communities as another dimension, because it's not just about the classroom. You know, it's about neighborhoods and communities and all the other support and uh, necessary uh, public goods, et cetera, that, that you need to, to have a kind of a livable place. And that was in the back of my head. So I, I, sorry for the long story, but I met with Benji and Andy and, you know, to their credit, they were focused on those projects and they said, oh, Brent, I don't know. We don't have the ability to go do this project right now. We're so underwater. We don't have enough people, right? We don't want to overcommit and underdeliver. All the right things, all the right responsible things. And um, I was the irresponsible one. <laughs> and I just went ahead and put together a proposal and sent it to Nick and didn't tell anybody. I mean, this is a terrible way to manage an organization, right? You know, Nick called and said, hey, we want to interview you. Can you get on the phone? And in my work, this has been at the crux of it. I've always demanded that there be a certain process or a way to start a project. And I think we often modify and invent that for each project. That's the way we used to be a little bit more. We've, we've worked to build more consistency uh, in kind of establishing programs now, which is a little foreign for me personally, because I'm such a project guy. So we, I interviewed with them and they wanted us to do the project. I'll never forget Nick called me and it was a Thursday. And um, he said, hey, uh, we want you to do the project. We've got to do a schematic design in like two and a half weeks hmm. because it's a tax credit deadline. And I said, well, Nick, I told you, we're going to engage people. We're going to have a community conversation about the project. We're not just going to go design you, you know, a bunch of housing units. And he said, okay, well, tell me how we're going to do it. I said, well, we're going to be there Sunday. You have to put 
people in, you know, these people in the room. And I just defined what the character, you know, what the qualities, what the experiences of the room needed to be, whether they be, you know, former residents, future residents, people in proximity to the project, you know, the kind of classic profile of a room of people who care. And you would consider uh, that typical for a community engagement process, that sort of diversity? Yeah. I mean, we have to. I mean, and, you know, there are people who don't like the project or who may be opposed to it. I mean, this isn't about selling. This is about learning and listening. And I said, you know, we'll do the project, but you got to do your work, Nick. And so you got to put people in the room. I'll be there Sunday. I'll bring some folks with me. We'll meet Monday morning. We'll, we'll pull together a kind of a quantitative logic model of sorts out of our day that can guide some of our decision making. And then we'll go put together what will be um, a concept that you can submit to get your placeholder. And then we'll most likely come back and redesign it after the fact in order to make sure it fits for the place. So we went through all that. Brent, I'm sure that's a very succinct version of what you went through. Uh, But thank you for distilling the process for our listeners. Community engagement is one of those things which everybody agrees we should do, but often the nuts and bolts of how to do it get overlooked. So thank you. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Social Design Insights. Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi is brought to you by the Curry Stone Foundation and the Curry Stone Design Prize. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. In the first part of this episode, we have been speaking with Brent Brown about his Rio Grande Valley project and on how Building Community Workshop has been consistent in the effort of establishing a dialogue and creating a collaboration with different disciplines. These projects are so complex from a social, environmental and also economic point of view that without this kind of intelligence they would be bound to fail. Brent, is this the key of making your work sustainable and impactful? Do you consider this project successful? You know, when you ask me if that was a successful project or not, I can tell you, you know, it won awards. It got published. I can tell you that it that was on budget. You know, it, it got delivered in a timely fashion. I think it's pretty well built. We pushed the envelope with regard to some policy and regional kind of matters to help use it as a showcase for quality, affordable housing, rental, but also related to flooding and drainage, which is the number one issue in the valley. But that's not why it's a good project. It's a good project because as it's le- it leased up immediately, I mean, as units came online, we phased in the units that, you know, in like, I think it was about 14 or 15 units at a time, they would lease up immediately. And before, the, you know, as the project finished, it was 100% leased. And you could say, well, that's just because there's a lot of people that need decent housing. So you got a big market. But they took ownership of it. We had these porches. People occupied the porches with things, the way they started to tend or care with the plants that had been planted. I mean, it's like they love the place. And I think that 
it is one of the best, and I'm going to say affordable, but it's a, one of the best housing developments, I think, in the Valley that is affordable. And people drive by it and it doesn't look affordable. And so you feel pride in that, you know, people drive by and go, oh, I would like to live there. And you hear this and, and it got, and it's been used as a way to influence other areas or municipalities or things like that to try to engage affordable housing. So it has a leveraging benefit that ultimately its impact isn't just about the 55 housing units. It's about how it stewards an agenda for design, affordability, and other projects. I was wondering, because a lot of our listeners do not know specifically Texas or even the U.S. uh, to that extent, and I was wondering if you could go a step back and understand maybe a bit better, uh, besides, of course, you just mentioned that the number one issue was flooding. Maybe can you tell us a bit more of what are the issues that you encounter and what kind of population are the people that actually occupied the houses? So the Rio Grande Valley is thousands of square miles and it's very low dense. It's really not a valley. It's more like a delta in so many ways, right? It's very flat, uh, just barely above sea level. And it has paralleling irrigation canals and drainage canals. So it has this big system of bringing water into the area because of the history of farming. And then it has this other system, which is trying to take the water away. As in many places in the world, uh, poor people live in lower areas or less desirable areas. Right. And so flooding while hurricane uh, activity happens in the area, to be frank, the, the real challenge isn't the winds necessarily of the hurricane. It's the way that the, when the storm settles kind of over the area and it just rains and water builds up and floods and, and people have very, very severe conditions that with very substandard housing, predatory lending, the colonias that were established, which were Informal settlements in many ways have seen modernization through subdivision standards by the state. So a colonia today that, that may be made while designated as a colonia, you, you would say, oh, it's, you know, uh, there has to be water, there, the ability for lots um, sizable for um, septic systems. You'll have a paved street, no longer the dirt roads. But it may be at an elevation that has a likelihood of flooding and very little done to improve the system to accept flooding as you get increased development, et cetera. So I think you, you, you have burdens from transportation because the public transportation system is very modest. You have issues of, you know, the colonias are not incorporated in cities, although people pay taxes. The services are not being delivered in the same way that they would be in a municipal setting. There's no incentive for the municipal governments to incorporate these areas. The undocumented uh, or the status of many people from a citizen resident standpoint uh, creates a sense of uh, fear and uncertainty in people, I think, psychologically, which is incredibly present. So, so we did that project, and what happened was we were kind of introduced to the area. We, were, we became introduced to the uh, capacity and effectiveness and the good work that CDC Brownsville was doing. And then we got this kind of question there. The Ford Foundation had funded some work of a group that was made up of CDC Brownsville, Texas Low Income Housing Information Services, which is a legal group. And then an organizing group called Lupe, which had really come out of the um, farm workers movement. They were interested in doing some planning work around these colonias. And I never forget, Nick said, 
okay, we got some weird number. Like we got $87,200 to hire a planner to do seven <laughs> plans. And, you know, we're behind already on it. The grants we're, we're like four months into the grant and, you know, and so give me some advice. How do we hire a planner? You know, and I'm, I'm looking at, I'm going, you're crazy. I mean, you can't go hire a planner to go do seven plans in eight months in seven different or eight different communities. It just doesn't work that way. I said, look, let me think about it. So we came up with an approach. We hired three brilliant individuals that were young and energetic. Turned out to be three women. They were from three different parts of the country. It was like East Coast, West Coast, maybe two from the West Coast. Just brilliant, energetic. We showed up. We had kind of a hybrid office residence that they lived in. Man, they were just, they just showed the capacity of, you know, young designer talent. And we made a commitment to be there for 18 months. And I said, look, you got that much money, but here's the deal. We got to then go raise other money because we can't just go into communities and, you know, we've never done any work there yet. I know the organizers know people, but, you know, you're just talking about a plan and a plan is only as good as the process and, and the capacity that's built as you're putting it together. And so we did that and um, more funding came. And then that's what really kind of established us in more of a of a daily practice there, because the La Hacienda Casitas was the first project was was a project more than anything. And then now, as we began to invest some staff time there, I, I, w- I would go more. We developed this rich partnership with an organizing group, a legal group and a community development group. And then we were the, the design planning group. And it's been an amazing experience. We have learned more from those three organizations and from the clients, the citizens, the, and I say citizens, you know, the people, the residents of varied places across the Rio Grande Valley, across these thousands of square miles, that I think has made our practice more relevant everywhere we work. Uh, we've just learned a lot. That multidisciplinary approach with those skills, I believe, is the model for doing relevant, good design work. He said, you know, I, without an organizer, without a legal mind thinking about justice from that standpoint, without the community development organization, you know, if we're doing something and we don't have those pieces, you know, I'm looking for them uh, anywhere. I can find them uh, to at least learn from in a place, you know, wherever it is we're working. The leaders of these organizations that we're working with in the Valley, they know their mission they're very good at what they do. They're very experienced and hands-on. And we've come to understand what each other does and value it and respect it in our own kind of, you can call it a partnership, but it's more than that. There are times that each one of us has to lead and the other is willing to follow. I've never been in a working relationship in that way where there's a lot of trust that each of us knows what we're doing and we have a level of expertise and capacity and that our intent is, you know, not just what we want to do, right? It's about revealing and understanding the interests of uh, the public uh, in the Rio Grande Valley. It's about just bringing our our skills as a resource to empower those residents, wherever or whatever that we might be working on. Thank you, Brent. In this last words, you just stated a manifesto of public interest design, a multidisciplinary approach based on mutual trust involving local leaders as experts and bringing skills as a resource for empowering citizens. That's all we need. 
Thank you for summing it up so nicely. It has been a real pleasure to hear more about the Rio Grande project. And with this, we're ending the first episode of this interview. Please go on immediately with the second episode. We will be speaking with Brent Brown, founder of Building Community Workshop, about the maturity of his organization, looking at projects as Rapido, a building model that functions as a holistic approach to speeding up the process for returning residents to their home after natural disasters. We will be also talking about dissemination strategies and about how to face disinvestment and racial issues with design. So please stay with us a bit longer. Also, if you enjoyed this interview and our other interviews so far, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to follow us more closely. Thank you for listening to Social Design Insights.